0: And so it's good to be back with you and excited to be back in the book of 1 John. Chapter number 2 tonight, and we left off at verse 17 two weeks ago. So let's begin at verse number 18, and we'll read down to the end of the chapter. If the Lord will give us liberty, we'll use all of it tonight. The Bible says, Little children, it is the last time. And as ye have heard that Antichrist shall come, even now are there many Antichrists, whereby we know that it is the last time. They went out from us, But they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would no doubt have continued with us. But they went out that they might be made manifest that they were not all of us. But ye have an unction from the Holy One, and ye know all things. I have not written unto you because ye know not the truth, but because ye know it, and that no lie is of the truth. Who is a liar but he that denieth that Jesus is the Christ?' He is Antichrist that denieth the Father and the Son. Whosoever denieth the Son, the same hath not the Father. But he that acknowledgeth the Son hath the Father also. Let that therefore abide in you which ye have heard from the beginning. If that which ye have heard from the beginning shall remain in you, ye shall also continue in the Son and in the Father. This is the promise that he hath promised us, even eternal life. These things have I written unto you concerning them that seduce you. But the anointing which ye have received of him abideth in you, and ye need not that any man teach you. But as the same anointing teacheth you of all things, and is truth, and is no lie. And even as it hath taught you, ye shall abide in him. And now, little children, abide in him, that when he shall appear we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at His coming. If ye know that he is righteous... You know that everyone that doeth righteousness is born of him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I ask that you would give my thoughts and words clarity tonight. Give me the physical and the spiritual strength needed for the message this evening. And Father, I pray that the unction from heaven would take these words and apply them to our hearts. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that your word is perfect and preserved. We thank You that we don't have to doubt it. We thank You that there's no need and no possibility for any man to correct it. You can't correct that which is already correct. We just ask that You, Father, would give us understanding in Your Word this evening and apply it to our lives. Speak to hearts as we give You glory and be according to Your will. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Now, we've been for several weeks now in the book of 1 John, and I, I've been telling myself and promising myself, and, and I guess promising the Lord, too, that i will not going to spend a bunch of time on review every single time uh, that we met. But we uh, went through the beginning of chapter number 2, and we left off at verse number 17. And we talked about the practical proofs that a person knows God. And can I say to you that we are not fruit inspectors, we are not the profession police. But it does press upon us in some occasions to have an opinion, to have our mind made up about certain people. Uh, maybe not whether they know God, but whether they're of God, if that makes sense. I'm thankful that I'm not going to answer uh, to anybody but the Lord for the way that I live my life. Uh, and I guess all of us ought to be thankful in that way. Uh, but understand that in much as we have to interact with people, we also have to have an opinion about some things. And John is writing, combating this uh, false heresy known as Gnosticism and uh, a particular facet of it known as Docetism. And we've seen very uh, keenly how that John is addressing the doctrinal heresies of these groups. And can I say that doctrinal heresy is just as rife, just as plentiful, just as dangerous today as it's ever been? There would some, uh, be some that would have us to believe that we've got all these things worked out and that everybody's on the same page. Uh, but I would have you know that if we're ever all going to be on the same page, we're going to have to wipe clean the words that are written on it. Because the fact is, doctrine divides. Truth divides. And we find it all through the Word of God. And so as John is writing this book, he's addressing these doctrinal issues. And can I say to you that as far as our decision-making goes, opinions do not have preeminence, preferences do not have preeminence, but doctrine always has preeminence. Doctrine is the Word of God, and the Word of God is doctrine. I've heard some people say, well, you know, when that doctrine gets in the midst, and what they mean when they say that usually is when premillennialism gets in the midst. That's usually what they mean when they say that. And premillennial, and pre, well, I'll get it in a second. Premillennialism is a Bible doctrine, there's no question about it. But most of the time, they don't mean doctrine as is truly the understanding of the Word. They usually mean premillennialism. And uh, most of the time, they're scared of it because they don't understand it, and they don't understand it because they've never studied their Bible about it. Uh, It's amazing, all of the Bible you'd have to take out to not be a premillennialist. And that's not to say that if someone is not a premillennialist, they're a terrible person, or that they, you know, aren't saved. I don't find that premillennialism is a prerequisite for salvation. But if you're going to be biblically correct, it is a prerequisite. There is a right and wrong. There is a truth. There is a, a, an error. There, there is a position that is a biblical position that we all need to adhere to. So John is writing these things, and we come down to verse number 18, and he says this. He uses the terminology again, little children. This is an endearing terminology. I mean, he's talking to people that are the family of God. And he's writing to this uh, little uh, group of believers who had been forsaken who had been ridiculed, who had been persecuted, who had been made to doubt their position in Jesus Christ by these Gnostics. And over and over again, John uses these terms. And we preached on it Sunday morning, and we'll get to it, Lord willing, next week, where he speaks of them as beloved to reassure to them Uh, that they do know God if they know Jesus Christ. If they know Christ, they know the Father. If they know the Father, it's only through Jesus Christ. And he, he reiterates this over and over and over again. So he begins with this endearing title that he gives them, and then he makes this bold statement. He says, it is the last time. Now, can I say there is a practical reason he said this, and there's a doctrinal reason he said this. And both these things sort of collide one into the other. I believe that he is saying, in a very practical sense, this is the last time, because he wants them to understand that the time is urgent, that Satan is fighting, that Satan is doing his best to disturb and disrupt the church. He knows he can't destroy the church, but he's trying to disturb and disrupt the church. And he's trying to get them to understand that this is fight time, this is battle time. But then there's a doctrinal reason, and that doctrinal reason is this. The the phrase, last time, is is a theological statement in the Word of God. That's not just a generic, hey, it's getting late. That is literally a theological label throughout the entire Word of God to denote a time that the Bible calls the times of the Gentiles. In other words, the days uh, right before, uh, directly previous to the coming of Jesus Christ, uh, to rapture his church out, and then seven years later uh, to uh, appear visibly in a revelation before all of mankind and to establish an earthly kingdom. And so these are very, uh, if I can use this word, and uh, I-, I think most of you will be familiar, but it, it means in time things, and it's the word eschatological. Eschatology means the study of end-time things. And so this is an eschatological term that John is using. He's using a Bible term that particularly pertains to end-time things. And so he's wanting them to understand it as the last time. I wonder why he wanted them to know this. I think part of the reason was this, because we understand it being the last time Uh, that Scripture was closing, that God was not going to enter into any more dispensations until the millennial kingdom. And he wants them to understand that though there has been a group that has come along and said, hey, God deals differently with us than He deals with you, we have an advanced knowledge. John wants them to understand, no, they don't have an advanced knowledge. This is the last times. We are in the day of grace. Nothing will change between now and the coming of Jesus Christ. We are in the church age. And so he's giving them comfort by saying this. I think there is a third prophetic reason he tells them this. And it's found in the next phrase. As ye have heard that Antichrist shall come. Now, there's a few things I think worth pointing out here. One is this. The Antichrist is identified as a person in this passage. Now, some of you say, why does that matter? Because uh, there are vast numbers of people that believe uh, that the book of Revelation is just an allegory, that it's not a literal book, that believe uh, that uh, Jesus is not really coming on a white horse, that there's no real Antichrist, but that the word Antichrist just identifies everything bad or everything wicked. Now, here in a moment, John does tell us there are many Antichrists, but it begins by denoting this one person. So the Antichrist is not merely a machine. It's not merely a political body or a theological body. Now, can I say that during the tribulation period, uh, there will be a world system. There will be a theological world system and a political world system. But there will also be a singular human being, a man known as the Antichrist, the man of sin, the the son of perdition, And he will be a human being, a literal person, and John denotes that. John says there is an Antichrist coming. That's important for us to know. But then he goes a step further and gives us this almost mysterious phrase where he says, even now there are many Antichrists. Now, John doesn't want to uh, confuse us by saying simply there are many Antichrists nor does he want to mislead us simply by saying there is the Antichrist. But he tells us both. He does this because he wants us to understand that prophetically speaking, there will be a man of sin, and he is coming. But he wants us to understand that there is a spirit of Antichrist and an influence, and what the book of Second Thessalonians calls a mystery of iniquity that now worketh, that is present in the world and has been since John's time. He says there are many antichrists. And I would say to you that I think it's important, and we'll talk about this. Well, let's go ahead and continue on. I may backtrack a little bit. He says, whereby we know that it is the last time. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would no doubt have continued with us, but they went out that they might be made manifest that they were not all of us. Some of you, your your brain's wrapped in knots after all those us's but it's those us's that are so important that I want to draw attention to. And this is why. Because I believe there's a twofold understanding of that word us in this passage. And I believe that if we're going to be scripturally honest, when John says us, he doesn't just mean the church at Galatia. He meant the church at Galatia and himself, at least those two bodies. I believe John meant every single true Bible church, every single true New Testament church. And so there is a collective us that is spoken of here, us. Now, you say, why does that matter, preacher? Well, this is the reason why. As he is speaking of these antichrists, and that's what he calls these people that went out from them. He wants us to understand that this does not mean, and I'll say this to you as a pastor, okay? That doesn't mean every single person that leaves a local church is an antichrist. That doesn't mean that every single one does. That doesn't mean, I mean, I think John, when he says us, he's not speaking particularly about the local body at Galatia, but I think he's speaking of the body of Christ at large. And if I could define it the way I would define it, and I believe it's a biblical way to say it, I believe he's talking about those that profess a salvation experience through Jesus Christ, in keeping with Scriptures. In other words, those that would truly, according to the Bible, say, I am a Christian. I think that's who he's talking about when he says us. And he's saying there's some of them that walked with us, talked with us, that fellowshiped with us, but they were not of us. They went out from among us. But then I think there's another application, and that's this. Now, I just got through saying that he's not speaking just about the church of Galatia. And I don't believe he's speaking... I keep saying Galatia. I'm I'm thinking Galatians. We'll get there Monday. But this little body of believers that John is writing to, I don't believe he's just talking about that body. But can I say, I also don't believe he's not talking about that body either. And you say, what do you mean, preacher? Well, I mean this. If he wasn't talking about people that had left that actual body of believers, he wouldn't be writing it to them. And you say, preacher, why is it that God led John to do what some of us would perceive as, as playing the fence on both sides, and he's not doing that. But let me give you an analogy that I once heard about eleventh hour conversions. You know, people saved right before they die. A famous preacher said this about him, said there is one such occasion recorded in Scripture that none might despair, but only one that none may presume. Now, what's being said about that is this. God lets us know that a person can be saved at the 11th hour. But he doesn't emphasize it so that we don't put it off till the 11th hour. John is writing this to this group of believers because there will be some that will leave a local body because they were not of us. But he says us and gives a broader scope so that we understand that this Problem and this issue is much larger than just that local body. Can I say to you that, and I'm speaking personally as a pastor now, can I say that there? not everybody that has left Walridge Baptist Church in the past, it'll be four years on August 1st, not every one of them is left because they were not of us. Not every one of them. Some of them left, God led them other places. Some of them left, and, and they would even tell you this because they didn't, really weren't following the Lord when they came. But could I say that I do believe there's been some that have left for that reason? There's been some that have. You see, what John's trying to get them to understand in this present historical context of what he's speaking of, he's speaking of these Gnostics. And he's saying these people have left your body because they weren't part of the body. Can I say there is a difference between our body and the body? I I, I believe in our body. You understand what I mean? I believe in the local church. And I believe the local church is God's instrument for reaching a lost and dying world. And I believe that the local church is God's only expression of the body of Christ in this world that is visible and experiential. But I also believe there is the body. I don't believe that it's just the local church. Now, and we could get in a whole discussion about the bride of Christ and about the local church and about spiritual baptism, and that'd be a worthy discussion, but that's not what we're studying. But suffice it to say this, I believe that I am knit together with all believers in Jesus Christ. But that don't mean that I go anywhere and everywhere and don't have a local church and support a local church and be a part of a local church simply because I'm knit together with all believers everywhere. You see, there is an invisible body, but it is just that. It is an invisible body. And that invisible body, and we talked about this when we studied through the book of Ephesians back maybe about a year ago, where it talks about uh, the whole building being fitly framed together and being joined together. There is an invisible body. But the means through which the Great Commission is carried out and believers find fellowship and the work of God is carried out in this world is not through the invisible body because it's known only to God. It's through the local body. So I believe that there is an understanding here that John is trying to give us. He's trying to let us understand when he's talking about the us, that it's a broader us than just this little body. But in their case, and probably in ours at times, and probably every church across this city that's a real Bible-believing church and across this nation, there have been times in our experiences, and there certainly were in their experience, where it was their local body that they went out from amongst us. And you say, well, why do you say all this, preacher? Well, two reasons. One, I believe it's biblical, and, and everything biblical we need. Amen? We need. It may not make us cry. It may not make us shout. It may not move us to an altar. But everything biblical we need. We need all of it. But I say it, too, because it gives us a better understanding of the use of this word antichrist. Because something you'll find is that the, this group, this movement of Gnosticism and Docetism, in many ways characterizes two things one, the very work of the Antichrist, and two, the very spirit and attitude of modern-day apostasy in the world and in the professing church today. You see, as I began to think and meditate on things that will characterize the Antichrist, I began to see these three major doctrinal heresies that John is addressing. What are they? Uh, One is this idea of a spiritual union together. All material things are evil. All spiritual things are good. You remember, that was one of their chief doctrines. Can I say to you today that the spirit of ecumenicalism is the spirit of the Antichrist? Now, I'm not saying there aren't some things. I mean, listen, preference and opinion, we can put those aside. But when we put the Bible aside to have fellowship with somebody that's out of Bible order... We're telling them and we're telling the Lord that they're more important than the Word of God is. I'm not, I'm not all for feuding and fighting over every little thing. I hope you know me well enough to know me that, that way. I'm not saying that we need to always have that chip on our shoulder waiting for somebody to knock it off. But, but I'm merely saying this, that the spirit of ecumenicalism, the idea that we put aside what we believe or disbelieve with each other to adhere to what we do believe has always been the spirit of Antichrist. You see, there's always been this attitude of, well, that really don't matter. And I've heard people say this before. Let me tell you what the go-to thing is I hear from people day in and day out in this world. Well, that's not the main thing. Can I say to you that it, something may not be the main thing, but that doesn't mean that it's nothing. Isn't that true? There are things that are the main thing. I believe that the gospel is the main thing. I believe that Jesus Christ is the main thing. I believe the Word of God is the main thing. I believe that. And I can give you Scripture for every one of those. I can give you Scripture for the fact that that, that Paul spoke about the preeminence of the gospel. And if any other man preaches any other gospel, we'll be in Galatians here on Monday soon. Uh, let him be accursed. But I can also give you Scriptures where it says about Christ in Colossians chapter 1 that in all things He might have the preeminence. But I can also also take you uh, to the book of Acts where it says about the name of Christ that there's none other name given among men, given under heaven, whereby you must be saved. Oh, but I can take you to the book of Psalms where it says that His Word is exalted above His name. You say, preacher, what are you getting at? I'm saying this, those things are the main thing. But just because something's not the main thing, that doesn't make it nothing. And I've heard people say time and time again, well, that's not the main thing. That's not the main thing. Let's just rally around the main thing. Well, the Bible commands us to preach the whole counsel of God. Whole counsel. That's not my words. That's the Word of God. And that doesn't mean we need to feud and fight over everything, but that doesn't mean we need to dismiss Bible doctrine so that we can all hold hands and feel better about it. There's things that aren't the main thing but are important. I mean, listen, Does uh, can a person get saved? Now, I want you, and, and I'm going to try to be obedient to the Lord and try to get as far as I can both at the same time, so you just be patient with me. But let me ask you something. Can a person get saved and not believe that the King James Bible is the only Word of God? Sure they can. Sure they can. Does that mean that it doesn't matter what we believe about the King James Bible? No. Can a person get saved and then get sprinkled instead of dunked? Sure. Sure. Sure they can. Does that mean that the mode of baptism is not important? No, that's not what it means. You see, there's lots of things that may not be the main thing, or they may not be salvitic, you understand. Salvitic meaning something that pertains or is necessary for salvation. But that doesn't mean that they're not important. Let me ask you another question. This may You may have to scratch your head a little bit to think about it. Does a person have to believe in the virgin birth to be saved. I'll tell you right now, as a 10-year-old boy, I may have believed in the fact of it, but I sure didn't understand the truth of it. We had 13 kids saved up at camp. And that wasn't just counting noses. I mean, if we wanted to come back and tell you how many professions we had, you know, we took up 54 kids, you know, we, we could probably run the numbers and count kids twice and have 60 professions if we wanted to. But that's 13 kids that we sat down and we talked to and we made sure they understood but I'll tell you right now, six, seven, eight-year-old little kids getting saved, they don't understand everything about the virgin birth. But now let me ask you something. Does the virgin birth matter? Without the virgin birth, Jesus Christ is a sinner. If He's a sinner, He can't be the Son of God. You say, preacher, what are you getting at? I'm trying to say that just because something may not be the main thing or may not be salvific in its nature, that doesn't mean that it needs to be disregarded. It's still important. It's still worth standing on. By the same token, I don't think a grown adult that understands all the implications of the virgin birth and denies it can be saved. You say, what do you mean? Well, if they understand that if if Jesus isn't born of a virgin, then Jesus is a sinner, and they believe consequently that Jesus is a sinner, then they can't believe He's the Son of God. I don't believe they can be saved if they don't believe He's the Son of God or if they believe He's a sinner. So I'm saying this, there's some things that aren't the main thing, but that doesn't make them nothing. And they're worth standing on and they're important. So I, I believe this idea of union, not unity, but union, you know the old adage, I've said it from here, you can take two cats, tie their tails together and have un- union, but that don't mean you have unity. You can have union without unity, and I think we don't need to seek union, we need to seek unity based upon and, and, and built around the Word of God. So that's one of the doctrinal heresies. What's another one? This idea that Jesus was not the Christ, that Jesus was just a human being. That's what this group believed. They denied the deity of Jesus Christ. Now, what's going to be the chief doctrine of the Antichrist? If he's going to build a one-world religion, which he will, then he's going to have to deny Jesus Christ as the Son of God and the only way to heaven. And he will do that. The Bible says he'll set himself up in the temple of God as God. Let me give you a third one, this moral superiority. I was reading it just today and studying for the message in the book of Revelation where it talks about the whore of Babylon. And if that's uncouth language, take it up with the Lord because that's what she's called. And it's speaking of the, the religious system that will exist in the one-world empire of the Antichrist. And it talks about her being drunk upon the fornications and abominations. The idea that there is no sin, that it is all relative, that it's not relevant unless it's relative. This idea that there is no standard, that's going to be an earmark of the one-world government and of the Antichrist system. It's going to be an earmark of it. Well, that was something they believed in that day. It's all relative. There's no real sin. The only sin is what's outlawed. Boy, don't you hear that today? Only what the government says is wrong. You know, that's what we're teaching our kids. When, when uh, the government legalizes marijuana and then all of a sudden we, get, we start getting soft about it, or, or when the government legalizes liquor and now we don't have a problem with it, or when the government legalizes abortion and we don't have a problem with it, we're teaching them that it's not government, it's god and that the government dictates what's right and what's wrong. Let me give you another one very quickly, and then I'll move on. The idea of extra-scriptural authority or revelation. You see, that's basically what sums up their entire... They had these three heresies, but they were vested in this idea that they had a revelation of God or from God that no one else had. That's extraneous teaching above and beyond what the Word of God teaches. That's what you find today. You find new versions adding things and taking things away. You find uh, quote unquote theologians and and popular book writers that they may use the King James Bible, but but they are adding to with their uh, or taking away with the doubt that they cast and shed upon uh, the Word of God. And this idea that well it doesn't matter if it's not in the Word of God, God gave it to me. Well, I'll tell you this: uh, if He gave it to you and it's not in His Word, keep it to yourself because He sure didn't give it to us. Amen. It's all found in the Word of God. The Word of God is the truth, the basis of it. And so these Antichrists in that day really carried with them the spirit and mentality and mindset of the Antichrist and of that world system that would one day exist. He says, they went out from us, but they were not of us. In other words, when he says us, again, he's speaking about Bible Christianity. Salvation, uh, not by works, but by faith through the person of Jesus Christ. (coughs) The Gnostics had departed from that. They were now saying they had a moral superiority. Uh, They were living in sin. They weren't living and abiding in the Word of God. And they were saying, that's okay, because God's told us it's okay. John says, it's not okay. They left you because they were not of you. For if they had been of us, they would no doubt have continued with us. But they went out, and here we see the sovereign hand of God, that they might be made manifest that they were not all of us. Let me make a statement to you, and I heard, uh, I I think I shared it a few weeks ago, but I'll share it again, that uh, I heard Brother Don uh, Save will make, and it stuck with me. He was talking about the church and how the Bible talks about how it would be spotless and without blemish and all of these things. And he made this statement, he said, I hear people say all the time what a mess the church is in. All the iniquity and sin and apostasy. And he made this statement, and I can say that I wholeheartedly agree with him. He said, I don't think the church is in as big a mess as people say it is. He said, but I also don't think it's quite as big as people say it is. Well, that's what John's saying. John's saying, you had some people that were among you that were not of you. But God saw to it that there came a time when they went out from you. God's purifying and purging his church day in and day out. And, I, you know, I'll, I'll share with you in the most tactful words I can what my old pastor used to say, that the church is a body. And a body must eliminate or it'll die. And there is such thing as purging. And that doesn't mean we set ourselves up on a high horse and every time somebody leaves our doors or leaves this fellowship uh, that we say, oh, well, they left because there's wrong. They left because they're out of the will of God. They left because... No, I'm not saying that. But what I am saying is this, that every church goes through purging time and time again. And let me say that God in His sovereignty allows me to say this at a time when I believe and and to what I see, and you can disagree with me if you'd like, but I see our church growing. I mean, we're not hitting, you know, we're not hitting record lows. We're not in despair. I'm not saying it to keep up morale or keep people going. Things are going well in God's blessing, but I'm merely saying that there is a purging that takes place. Sometimes it's all at once. Sometimes it's little by little. And sometimes it's merely because God does lead people to other places. This isn't the only church in town. And and listen, it don't bother me that there's other Bible-believing churches. It blesses me that there's other Bible-believing churches. There's people they'll reach that we won't reach. God bless them, and I rejoice for everyone that they have saved and all the influence that God gives them. So I'm not saying that everyone that leaves out of here, it's because they're wrong with God, but there will be some that leave for that reason. There will be some that do leave because they were not of us. And certainly when you look at these and you see it time and time again, if you pay, I don't pay attention to big names. To me, there's only one big name in Christianity, and that's the name of Jesus Christ. So I don't pay a lot of attention to what the world calls big names, but it never fails. There'll always be. Whoever the big names are now, you can about mark her down. If there's five of them, at least three of them will have a scandal before she's all said and done. And it's not you remember in your time, you remember the bakers, you remember all of everything, you remember Fallwell. you remember the falling out, you remember that, and we, my generation's got ours. And I'm merely saying, and I'm not saying a Christian man can't make a mistake either, but there's some of them that they, just don't, they don't just fall, they fail, you understand? They don't just step out, they jump out. And people say, what happened that they went so far out in left field? What happened that this person that used to believe the Word of God is now gone so far from it? What happened? Well, they went out from us because they were not of us. And so I believe that he's giving us this exhortation here. He says in verse 20, "...but ye have an unction from the Holy One, and ye know all things." Now, John's not saying that we're all know-it-alls. What he's saying is we have the capacity to know all things through the Word of God, and particularly through the Spirit of God. That's what that word unction means. Uh, It is the word anointing. And he's speaking of the Holy Spirit of God that indwells every single believer. And you understand that while he's saying this, and I'll look down in verse number 27 and and pair these two together because it's important. But the anointing which you have received, uh, the Bible says, abideth in you, and ye need not that any man teach you. He's not saying you don't need teachers in life. What he's saying is this. There is no hierarchical priesthood in the New Testament church. When he's speaking of some man teaching you, he's not saying like, like you know, a Sunday school teacher would take the Word of God and open it to you. But this idea that, that, that these Gnostics were in between them and God, and God had to give the truth to them, and then they'd turn around and give it to them, kind of like how the Pope says when he sits in ex cathedra, uh, everything he speaks is infallible, and God gives it straight to him, and then he turns and gives it to the church. John says, no, 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 no. Says, you all have the Holy Spirit of God abiding within you. And He knows truth and He can teach you truth. Because these Gnostics were saying, Hey, we've got a special revelation. John says they don't have a special nothing. Maybe a special mental capacity. He says they don't have a special anything. No, you have the Holy Spirit of God in you, and He's able to teach you. He says, I have not written unto you because you know not the truth, but because you know it, and that no lie is of the truth. Now let us just walk through these very quickly. Who is a liar but he that denieth that Jesus is the Christ? Now, you remember one of the claims? One of the claims that Jesus was a human and that Christ was a spirit and that the spirit of Christ descended like a, in the likeness of a dove, which, by the way, was the Holy Spirit of God. That wasn't the spirit of the Messiah, but that was the third person of the Trinity the Holy Spirit of God that descended upon Christ, not because He didn't have the Holy Spirit, but because He was endowing and doing Him for His public ministry. Now, you say, wait a minute, did He not have the power? Oh, yes, Christ had the power. Christ had the power of God, and He was God in the flesh. But God, in His uh, eternal sovereign nature, chose to bestow the Holy Spirit in a very public and visible way upon Christ, and it was after that in John chapter number two, that this beginning of miracles did Christ and God. you say, why did God do things that way? You know, I kind of think it was for this reason. Christ would go on later to say greater things than I have done. You will do. Why? Because I go to my father and the comforter comes to you. In other words, everything that Christ did, aside from dying upon Calvary for our sins, aside from the things that he did that were connected directly to His divinity, were things that uh, the apostles would do through the power and work of the Holy Spirit in their life. So there's a purpose in it. But they believed uh, that that uh, that Spirit of Christ descended in the likeness of a dove and then departed before He died on Calvary. But what does John say? John says, "...who is a liar but he that denieth that Jesus is the Christ." He is Antichrist that denieth the Father... And the Son, whosoever denieth the Son, the same hath not the Father. But he that acknowledgeth the Son hath the Father also. Why is this important, what he's saying? It's important because when we think of the Father, we think of God in a generic term sometimes. And can I say that most people, when they talk about God, the person that they're speaking of is the eternal consciousness that we know as God. And there's so many people today that say, oh, yes, I know God. Well, it's not a question of if you know God, it's a question of if you know Jesus Christ. If you don't know Jesus Christ, you don't know God. Because no man cometh unto the Father but by me. I am the way, the truth, and the life is what Christ said. And so we we haven't had a president. We haven't had a president that hasn't said they know God. And only they'll know before before the Lord Jesus Christ. Only they will know. But sometimes I wonder if we've ever had one that has. Some of you are going to hit me for talking about Reagan that way, but I'm, I'm just being honest with you. Sometimes I wonder with the things that they allow and partake in. Every one of them says, oh, yes, oh, yes, I believe in God, I believe in God. That's not the question. Do you know Jesus Christ, His Son? Not do you know of Him, but do you know Him? Because that's the only way to know God the Father. And so he says this, Who is a liar but he that denieth that Jesus is the Christ? That's the acid test, friend. The acid test is what do they say about Jesus Christ? Do they say he was a good man? Well, that's not good enough. Do they say that he was a great miracle worker? Well, that's not good enough. Do they say that he was a prophet like Islam does? Well, that's not good enough. If they don't believe that he is the Christ, meaning the Messiah that was to be sent from God and of God, that was God in the flesh, the Son of God, And what did the Messiah do? What was part of his messianic work? To die upon Calvary for the sins of each and every person. To bear our sins. You say, well, that's not messianic, that's sacrificial. Read Isaiah 53 and tell me that the work of the Messiah was not sacrificial. To be led as a sheep before her shears, as a lamb to the slaughter, that all our sins and iniquities would be laid upon him. You say, preacher, what are you getting at? I'm saying the only way to know God is through Calvary the only way. If a person denies Calvary, he doesn't have God. If he denies the Son, he doesn't have God. He can talk about God all day long. He can get up on TV and talk about God. Something I thought was interesting, I'll close with this. We find two parts of the Trinity spoken of. Isn't it interesting that it doesn't say anything about the Holy Spirit? Now, we did see about the Holy Spirit in verse 20 and in verse 27. But in verse number 22, he does not say anything about the Holy Spirit. Why is that? I believe there's a twofold reason. One of them is this, because if a person confesses Jesus Christ, it's only through the Holy Spirit. That's what John said, didn't he? That, that this cannot be confessed, that uh, no man can declare that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh except by the Spirit of God. Doesn't he say that later in First John? Doesn't he say that? In other words, a person can't get saved except out of the power of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit of God has to quicken him. That's the only way it can happen. So I, I believe part of the reason is because it's a given, that no man is going to be through the Holy God claim that Jesus Christ is not the Son of God. But, you know, I think there's another reason. I think there's another reason, and this is the reason that I believe. I believe because they always say it's by the Holy Spirit. You know, you'll never find a single apostate or heretic that'll say anything ill of the Holy Spirit. I'm being truthful now. You'll never find one of them that'll say anything against the Holy Spirit. Do you know why that is? Nine times out of ten, their entire ministry is built upon overemphasizing and upholding and uplifting and glorifying the Holy Spirit. Turn it on, friend. Tur- turn it on the, the, the TBN. Tur- turn it on the, the TV preacher. And you'll find charismatic after charismatic after charismatic that will glorify the Holy Ghost. That's not of the Holy Ghost. You say, how do you know that, preacher? Because Christ said, he'll not speak of himself. He'll speak of me. Now, that ain't to say that we shouldn't talk about the Holy Spirit. That's not to say we shouldn't encourage people to be surrendered to the Holy Spirit. But part of this spirit of Antichrist is to claim that they, through the Spirit of God, have some sort of special revelation. So John's saying, I know they're going to talk about the Holy Spirit. I know they're going to uphold the Holy Spirit. He says, you really want to know the truth, though? find out what they believe about Jesus. That's the acid test. What do they believe about Jesus Christ?